The Be Here Now Network invites you to join Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, and some of today's leading mindfulness meditation instructors for a two-year mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. Get the training you need to guide others in their journey with a powerful online training course and in-person teaching events. To learn more, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash GetCertified. Welcome to the Krishna Das Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishna Das shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishna Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd. I got an email last night from somebody who. Uh, was listening to a podcast or something of mine. And he said, so everybody's divine, even pedophiles, serial killers. It was a long list. So what do you say? All I can think of saying is, thanks. All I can think of saying is like, well, that's what they say. And they know. They say we all have that essence within us, whether you call it the soul or you call it Buddha nature or you call it Christ, whatever you call it. Everybody's got it because we're all a part of the same thing. But there's an interesting concept, especially they talk about it a lot in Buddhism, where there's ultimate reality and relative reality and guess where we live down the block from relative reality <laughs> we rent a house and uh, rent a relative reality anyway so <clears throat> the idea is that in our, the world we live in there's certain rules and regulations and things work a certain way and if you don't uh follow the rules, you get hit by a car. You stop at the red, right, and you go at the green. That's the way things work. Laws of karma apply here. But in ultimate reality, the appearances disappear. What this looks like reveals itself to be something else. It's already in there. Everything we need to know and everything we already are is already where it's already in there. All these practices do is uncover that place, uncover what's already there. You know, there's times where we don't really want to be uncovered. Too bad. That's where it's happening. That's what's happening. That's what these. That's what we really want. We want to be free of our restrictions, our limitations, and free of the the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. So, I don't even know if I'm going to bother to write back to the guy. I think he just wants to fight, you know. I'm not going to fight. What do we fight. What's the fight about? 
you know, you look at these pictures these on the wall, and you, you, the idea of murtis or idols, you might say, in India, is that they're mirrors. They're mirrors of a deep of our true nature, because these beings have recognized that. So when you look at them, you see the outer form, of course, first. But what the outer form of these beings is just a, uh, how do you say it? It's like uh, an empty uh, skin. It's just painted over the real thing so that we can see. Because the real thing you don't see with your eyes, your physical eyes. You don't, you don't experience it with your physical senses. So when we look at a murti or a, a, a representation or a photo of a great being, two things are happening. There's the relative reality. We're seeing the picture. But coming from those beings is the, the, the emanation of what's real. And that's coming in there underneath the radar, which is our evaluation minds, our thinking minds. So they're mirrors of a deeper place. And the Hanuman Chalisa, the first, the first verses are uh, an invocation. I, I take, I bow to the lotus, to the pollen-like dust. Okay? You know, like pollen is like a dust. The pollen-like dust of the lotus feet of the guru. And I take that dust to clean the mirror of my mind. So the devotion to those one time Maharaji asked us, why do you touch my feet? Right? And when this guy, Balaram, who had the best answers for everything, he said, because even though it's the lowest place on your body, it's higher than we'll ever get. <laughs> <laughs> Too great, right? Too great. Another time we were sitting with Maharaji and Balaram had a book it was just with him. And Maharaji says, what's that book? And it happened to be a book called the, uh, I think it was the Ashtavakra Gita, which is a supreme statement of ultimate non-duality, right? Everything, I didn't want to go there. But the ultimate oneness, right? So Maharaj says, what does it say in that book? So Balaram says, all one. <laughs> Maharaj looked at the Indian people, he goes, they know. These boys know everything. Uh, anyway, questions or anything? Okay. <clears throat> I know I started to say something, but I forgot what it was. Anyway, we'll get there. Hi. 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 Um, I've heard you speak in the past about longing, and uh, I've heard you, you, you referred to it as the love. I've also heard it referred to as the connection to the divine. Mm -hmm. um, well, speaking from previous experience, I know that after this, when I go back home, that longing is going to be very intense. You're lucky. <laughs> okay. Well, how a do lot you of people just forget this, you know. Go back to uh, their TVs. Yeah. Well... When, that's, when this longing is so intense that you, f you feel like you can't stand it, it it's, it's, 
It's almost you feel like you're going to burst. You're you know, th- like there's nothing. That's nothing called you- bhav. That's called bhav. Don't how fight do you- it. That's what saves you. Think of how many things you're not doing because you're longing for something, for something how- real. How do you handle that? How do you deal with that? What the fuck? You think you can handle it? <laughs> what do you think you are? <laughs> Sorry. You can't handle it. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from your own heart to yourself. You can't handle it. Just suffer. Go ahead and burst. You can't burst. You think you could burst? Go ahead and burst. <laughs> See? Can't burst. Ego bullshit. <laughs> the longing is what saves us. That's how we experience being pulled from within to our own true self. That longing saves your life. Without that, you just be, you get born, graduate from high school, drink beer, and die. That's it. Without that longing, what would you have? Nothing. Nothing. So, it's hard to enjoy feeling bad, but if you think about it and sit with it, you'll see your, that longing is the connection. Do you know the, the Rumi poem, Love Dogs, right? Who doesn't know it? It's not enough people. Okay, I messed it up. That's why I don't want to say it again. But the idea of the, of the poem is like, Rumi says, you know, a man is crying, Allah, Allah, and his lips are going sweet with the, the praising of God, right? And a cynic walks by and just happens to say, why are you praying? Did you ever get an answer? Well, the guy goes, no, he didn't. I didn't. So he stops praying, goes home, goes to sleep, and in his dream, The guide of souls comes to him and says, Why'd you stop praying? He said, I never got an answer. The guide of souls says, You hear that dog howling in the middle of the night, howling for its master? The howling is the connection, the calling out is the connection. The calling out is the answer already. So you just have to recognize that when we see it from our point of view, we feel unhappy, unsatisfied. The longing to us makes us feel bad. But if we just switch that around, we see that the longing is really an absolute flow of connection with, with that which, which, with that which is, you know, don't push it away. No reason to push it away. Don't be afraid of it. That's what saves you every day, because it's always working. It's always saying not enough. And you might be saying, "Damn!" But the longest saying, "Not enough." So that's good. Very good. You know, our idea of what we think is supposed to be happening, that's just our idea of what we think is supposed to be happening. It's happening. 
regardless of what we think about it. And nothing we think about it can actually be it. So the longing is, is the juice. So don't fight it. Anybody else? Quick question. Um, I started on the Buddhist. You, you said that the other day, didn't you? Say so you have two questions. No, one. Else. No, that was someone no, else. Somebody else. Okay. Quick question. Yeah. I I started on the Buddhist path, and it's still my foundation, but I'm exploring. You know, adding here and there. Isn't that Could, big of you? No, no. It's so nice of you. Thank no, you. come on, come on, come on. I want to understand what your connection is to Hanuman and why it resonates with you. If 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 you care to answer that, I don't know if it's personal. Uh, it's. I don't even know what is personal. What's not personal? I don't even. I don't know. You know, um, Maharaji is Hanuman. Okay, that's the first thing. When we got to India, first of all, the story of Hanuman is so great, and the story of his devotion and his service and his uh, uh, his strength and his ability to overcome all obstacles to to serve the God within and without. That's very inspiring. And we read um, the Ramayana is the story, or the Ramayana, which is the way they pronounce it. In English, it's Ramayana. So is the story of, of Ram's Leela in the world. And Hanuman's a big part of that. And uh, But there's Two ver- there's many versions of it, but two main versions. One is by Valmiki, which tells the story. And the other one is called the Ram Charitamanas, which means the lake, the, the mind lake of the deeds and stories of Ram. And every chapter in the book is called a descent into the mind of the, the lake of the mind, the lake of the being, of the soul, so to speak. And um, it's a completely different book. It's completely devotional. And the story will go along a few steps this way, and then all of a sudden somebody will see Ram and look at him and and start like 20 pages. Oh, my God, look at that. I can't believe how beautiful his eyes are. This is his you know. And then it comes back down and goes a few more steps, and somebody sees Ram. Oh, my God. And so it has an effect of rewiring your brain. Because we didn't, in the West, we didn't grow up with these kind of thought forms. We had no way of expressing, to use a miserable word, spiritual love. Love that isn't lust. Love that, love that isn't object-oriented. Even love for our children is object-oriented. This is something else. This is no, there's no other in this love. It's just the love of love. And we don't have that. Like I said yesterday, we have Mickey Mouse. So, reading this book, I read this book. Ramdas brought it back from India, so I read it after I met Ramdas. It just like rewired my brain because now that longing had channels to flow, whereas before there was no way out of there. That heart was all locked up with all kinds of nonsense, and now there were new channels to flow. And one of those channels is Hanuman, you know, that biggest channel. And Mahar, when, I, when we got to India, we, we saw that the Maharaji's devotees treated him as Hanuman. They saw him as Hanuman. 
actually some of the really old devotees worshipped him as Shiva, which is a whole other ballgame. It's a whole other level. Because Hanuman is a form of Shiva. Not actually a form of Shiva, but Shiva, the 11th Rudra. There is 11 forms of Shiva. The last 11th Rudra has a monkey face. And that form of Shiva transmitted its energy through the wind god to Hanuman's mother. And Hanuman was born by that energy. It may or may not have been a virgin birth. (laughs) But something else was happening too. Anyway, um, so we've, we, we just gravitated to that, you know, that, uh, those forms, and we, they allowed us to find a way to be with Maharaji in a, in a kind of, certain kind of a way. And, uh, you know, Indi- we, were, we were absorbing Indian culture also, and this, was, this worked very nicely. You know, and gave us a way to 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 deal with the feelings that we had. You know, which which were um, didn't have any you know a way to express them because they you don't have that in, in on Wall Street. You don't have that in the White House, especially. You don't have they don't have these things going on here. There's no place for it. There's no satsang. You know. Yes, there's churches, yes, there's temples, yes, there's all kinds of things. But nobody there believes in God. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean that. I meant it when I said it. <laughs> but I want to take it back now. There are people who believe in God, but their experience of God may not be deep enough. That's what I'm trying to say. So the satsang or the or the turns into a, a social situation, and the God. God is not just good deeds, you know. God is more than that. There's a thing we can actually experience directly, but those situations often often turn into just you know good Samaritan things, which is nothing wrong with that, by the way. If there was more of that, it would be a better world. But here we're talking about something very specific, which is realization. You know, so we saw that Maharaji was considered to be Hanuman, and, and we kind of studied that. You know, we we would we would not through books, but we would look at this and say, "What is this? You know, what does this feel like?" The only way, the only reason that I have any feeling at all for the for for I don't even know what to call it is because of my time with him because I know what it felt to be in the presence of love. Right? That's the only, that's, that's the north, whatever, the pole star, whatever. That's, that's the thing, you know, that's there. I, I see that, I know that. I don't live there. But that's what Hanuman's always turned to when he's separate. When he, when he sees himself as separate or experiences himself. You know, once Ram asked Hanuman, how do you see me? He says, well, when, when, I, when I experience myself as the body, I serve you. When I experience myself as the soul, you are the whole and I am a part of it. When I know who I am, there's only one of us. 
And those three levels are on all, with a being like Hanuman, all those three levels coexist. One is ultimate reality, and the other two are part of relative reality. And relative reality has to go beat up the bad guys and fly around and do all this stuff. But ultimate reality, nothing ever happened. And there's no one doing anything. That doesn't prevent him from doing, from living in this life 100%. You see? When there's no uh, limitation of thinking you are who you think you are, it's 100%. Everything else is about 2%. So, it, you know, on one hand, it became a practice. And then, of course, he gave us the Hanuman Chalisa. You know? <clears throat> and he said, the Hanuman Chalisa can change fate. That's a pretty big statement. And when he talks about this stuff, he doesn't fuck around. When he says, oh, I'm just going, I'll be back tomorrow, you, know, you can bet that you won't see him for like weeks. But when he talks about this stuff, he said, chanting the Hanuman Chalisa can change fate. In the sense, I think, I should, in the sense of your life is like a stream, and downstream there might be some big rocks, you know? Those rocks can be removed without you even knowing it by the sincerely practicing these things. You can't do it for that reason because then it's fear-based and it just creates more separation. But the doing of it can ease... Can, well, because Hanuman, that energy removes obstacles, destroys calamities. Sankat mochan. that's what it means. Sankat means calamity. <clears throat> so, so, so he he encouraged us to sing that by kept asking us to sing it. And he that's and he never said sing it, do this as a practice. He never said those things, but he he made us sing it all the time to him. So it kind of even I got the message, you know. But again and again, he said, Hanuman, Krishna, Christ are all the same. All the same. And that's why I, I, I came to love Jesus very much, you know. Growing up, you know, Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> that wasn't happening. But when, he, when I saw it through those eyes, from that way of looking at it, I went, oh, of course, you know. And then you see how, how, how horribly misconstrued and misunderstood the whole situation was and what it was used for, how, how people with worldly desires used uh, Christianity to, to conquer and, and, and make people suffer and build up real estate, you know, disgusting. I hate to say it, it's only one. Organized religion sucks pretty much, you know. The organizers want too much, that's all. It's not the, it's not the you know, within two seconds of the, of the prophet leaving the body, whoever started the, the so-called religion, which simply was not a religion, but it was, it was say, do this and that will happen. It's like science. Like Bob Thurman says, it's a prescription. It's like, a, it's like a medical prescription. This is what you do. And then this happens. You get over suffering. You got to take this, you got to take this, you got to take this, and then, you know, you'll be better. 
But within two minutes of them being gone, somebody else takes it over and screws it all up. This is the way it's supposed to be. It's too bad, though. Anybody? Where's the mic? Hi. Oh, hi. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to follow up. It, it works out really well with what you just said. Um, what's your relationship with Ganesh? <clears throat> I don't recall hearing um, thing or chant. Yeah, you know, um, Ganesh, uh, wherever there's a Shiva temple, there's a Ganesh Murti there, even in the north. But in the north, it's mostly Hanuman. There's a lot of Ganesh, of course. But I just never, the temples I was in, nobody sang to Ganesh. It was all, especially up in the mountains. You know, in the mountains, it was all Hanuman and and uh, the goddess. So I, I don't even know if I know any Ganesh chants, you know. Isn't that funny? I don't know why. Ganesh and Hanuman are very similar. They they apparently have the same function of, of you know, removing obstacles and making things happen better and all that stuff. And, but what can I say? I just said it. Oh, wait, there was some, okay, go there, and then she has a hand up over there. Thank you. I'd like to share an experience I had chanting, and I was chanting to your tape. I had the opportunity to drive to Richmond, and it's about two hours there and two hours back. On the way home, I was chanting with Krishna Das. That was you? <laughs> and in the middle of the chant, I was quite animated. But I was thinking, it came to me, well, what am I chanting for? What's the point? And it dawned on me that I was calling, calling. And so I said, OK, I'm, I'm calling to who? Who am I calling to? And that moment, for one short second or less, I connected. And I have no words to tell you that experience. But it was like the answer to my questions. Thank you, Krishnadas. I hope you stayed on the right side of the road. <laughs> you won't thank me if you have an accident. Yeah, she had her hand up over here. Raise your hand again. Yes. Hi, Katie. So uh, thank you for bringing Hanuman into my life. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to know more about Baja Govindam. What does that mean to you? I mean, you know, you, you look it up online and there's just so much. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like, what your meaning, whatever it is. Yeah, it's very simple. Remember God. Bhajra means to remember, essentially. To praise, to sing, to remember. Govindam is the name of God. Bhajra Govindam. And Shankaracharya, the story, you've heard the story? about? You know? uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. But I'm sure everyone here oh, wants to. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, Shankaracharya was walking down the street one day, and he saw an old man who was sitting on the side of the road teaching the rules of Sanskrit grammar to a bunch of young students. And this old man was probably a little bit um, 
enamored of his Sanskrit uh, learning. So, and Shankaracharya could see that the old guy was going to die very soon. So, and that he'd never done any spiritual practice at all. So out of compassion, he walked up to him and he said, oh, my friend, Bhaja Govindam, Bhaja Govindam, you know, do something, you know, get, get it together, do something to help yourself. And that's the story. Then that, that he went back to his place and he composed this long hymn to Bhaja Govindam. And if you've never heard Subhulakshmi sing it, you haven't lived. You must find that. It's on, you can find it. It's a recording or it might even be on YouTube. Subhu Lakshmi, the South, South Indian singer. But you go in him, it's extraordinary. And the, the chorus is Bajagovindam, Mudamate, oh my foolish mind or foolish heart. What are you doing? He's, the, the, him addresses his own mind. He's talking to himself. You know, and then he says, you know, all you do is run around, you do this stuff. What did they do in those days? I don't know. Now we have TV, we have movies, we have the internet. How did they waste time in those days? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. They wasted time somehow. It must be boring. But anyhow. So he said each, each verse would, would, you know, list the ways that you just let your life go by. And you don't look, you don't pay any attention. You don't do what's even in your own best interests to wake up. But you go in them. That's what it is. Mudamate. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also wanted to thank you for your service. You're really welcome. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, two quick questions. They so don't the have to be quick. Can yeah. I let everybody? <laughs> I don't want to hear the word quick again, okay? Two questions. Because <laughs> I'll tell you the answers won't be quick. Yeah. So. Two long questions. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so the first question was, um, do you play other instruments and... I? Thought you played guitar, and do you still play guitar? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I'd love to hear it at some point. So. Yeah, so would I. <laughs> <laughs> and the other question is a follow-up from yesterday. We were talking about the Shivananda lineage and Sachinananda. Um, <clears throat> was Maharaji part of a no, lineage? No. And can you explain? But he loved Shivananda very much. He used to go visit him a lot when he was wandering around. He would go see Shivananda, and. Uh, And in fact, um, uh, what's one of those swamis? Um, I want to say Nirmalananda, but I don't think it was Swami Nirmalananda. There was another one of the first, the close group of swamis with Shivananda. <clears throat> was was going off for a while. He was going to go off to the mountains and meditate, and he was he left the ashram, you know, with with permission, and then he was going to go just wander around. And um, by he went, he was wandering in the hills, walking through the hills, and he came to Maharaji's ashram because he knew Maharaji. Maharaji used to go to Shivananda ashram and hang out there for a while, every once in a while. So he knew Shivan, uh, Maharaji. So he came to the temple, <clears throat> and um, he came, and Maharaji met him, and he said, he said. Your guru is sporting like Krishna. Is like, like playing in the world like Krishna. But how long can this last? 
go back to the temple. Go home. So he left, and he went, and he wandered around some more, and then he went to the house where he'd left some of his belongings down on the plains, and he heard that Swami Shibananda was very sick. And so he rushed back, and he realized that he had already wasted a week, that Maharaj had already told him what to do, and he didn't do it. So he, wait, he ran back to the ashram, and he managed to, I think he spent the last two weeks there with, with Swami Shivananda. Your guru is sporting like Krishna, but how long can this last? Such a beautiful way of saying it, huh? When I was at the, the Mahakum in 19, in 19, yeah, 19. <laughs> oh, that was 18. That was another thing altogether, I'm sorry. 1989 which was the 12th, 12th Kumbh Mela, you know, every 12 years, and then 12th, 12th. It was a big, there were like a lot of people, 20 million, 25 million people. So I was staying in the, uh, in the camp of this very old sadhu. It was uh, 163 then. And he went to visit another old sadhu who was over 250 years old that day, whose name was Deor Baba. And he came back to the camp and he told us that Deora Baba had told him that Sri Krishna had come to him and asked him to come play with him in Vrindavan. So he was going to go. And uh, he left his body a few days after that. That's the way they see it. That's the way it is. It ain't like this. It just looks like this. So, isn't that beautiful? Sri Krishna came and asked me to come to Vrindavan and play. Ah, so he left the body and went. Uh, next victim. I, I have a question, I guess, about suffering in the world. And my experience is, you know, there's this ego lens of seeing suffering in the world and there's judgment and criticism kind of mixed in there, but in my own practice, you know, I usually close with a prayer for the world, and I can feel my heart open up for about five seconds or ten seconds, and I can really feel the suffering. And Maharaji said that suffering brings you closer to God, and I, I just wanted you, if you could talk about that kind of suffering and the kind of suffering that, that brings you closer closer to that than any practices or first of all Maharaj said I love suffering suffering brings me closer to God it may not bring you closer to God but that's what he said um, the suffering that a saint experiences is very different than ours ours is ego driven ego based based on the fact that we believe ourselves to be who we think we are. So even when we look out at the world and see suffering, we're not seeing the world suffering. We're seeing our own. But in terms of practice, to try to transform that... Uh, try to transform our perspective. We, we try to s open ourselves to uh, 
You know, it's like when uh, George W. was president. I didn't like him, you know? And uh, I was flipping through the channels one night, and some program was on newscast, and it showed him uh, walking down a hall towards a room where a group of the first widows from the Iraq war had gathered to meet the president of the United States. And he walked through the hall like the president of the United States. And he walked into the room like the president of the United States. And he took one look at these women, and he burst out crying like a baby. Now, I, I couldn't hate him after that. In fact, all I could feel for him was compassion. Because what he's, and all, everybody, what we all do, we keep creating more and more and more suffering for ourselves and others without any understanding of what we're doing. And we don't know any better. And even when we think we know better, we keep doing the same stuff. So as a practice, it it's, can be useful to try to extend yourself to everyone. And, and, but you have to recognize that what you're experiencing is your suffering. Your own unhappiness is you're layering it over everybody else's. Somebody might be suffering, but the way you feel it is emotional, and that's not their suffering. When I went to Auschwitz with Bernie Glassman, we, we went there for a purpose, to bear witness to what happened there. To bear witness. Not to mope around, but to bear witness. How do you bear witness? You see something, you recognize it, you, 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 you try to be with it without your own subjective emotional stuff arising come and covering over if you if i if we wrote about so the so the idea is to bear witness which means you can't bear witness if you're going to go you know just keep crying about your own stuff you know and the people in your own family who were killed and all that it's all real but that's not going to let you bear witness so you have to try to drop all that stuff which is relatively impossible but you can lessen it little by little you know so um because Bernie's Bernie, a Zen master and a great, great, great being, his being there kind of allows something else to happen, that if, if we went there by ourselves and just moped around, his presence there opens a doorway for us to go through. And so after a few days, um, different feelings started to arise in me than the, what I had come there with, you know? You know... I thought about the guards there, you know, and I thought, you know, if I had been born in Nazi Germany to a family of Nazis and grown up like that, why would I believe anything else about anything, right? What would have, what would have, where, where, what would have in my world would have told me that this was not the right thing to be feeling? Nothing. Karmically, I, I, I didn't have to do that. So that's where the real change is. That's, that's, that's the important thing. But if I had, I was no different than anybody. I'm a product of my karmic 
my karma and my environment and my parents and my life, which is all karmically determined. But I'm no better than anybody else. So I could feel for those guards. They also created suffering for themselves. And, you know, they're going to have to live through that. It's not quite, you know, you push a button and that's... And a couple of weeks ago, I did a workshop in, in Brooklyn, and a woman came up afterwards. She was really angry at me because, because I didn't say I went to Auschwitz to witness the suffering of the Jews. Right? So I said to her, well, there were gypsies, there were Poles, there were Catholics. But she wanted, if I, she was angry at me because I didn't say the Jews, you know, and she wouldn't give it up. She was just angry, and it had nothing to do with me. It had to do with her own unprocessed grief, you know, and she just denied that, you know. She was denying the grief and was caught in the anger. So every day I would, we would come to the camps and I would walk around, and it was beautiful there, green, grass and the trees were turning gold and red and orange and in this in this afternoon sun everything was lit up you know where the first day the the polish guide said to us you know it's very beautiful here now but in those days there was just mud because they ate every blade of grass they ate the bark and the leaves off of the trees they had nothing oh so I got angry at the sun. And every day I'd say, how the fuck do you dare rise over this place? How dare you? How can you do that, you know? I mean, really, I was furious for days. I just couldn't understand. How, how, how could the sun rise on a place like that? And then one day... You know, I just looked at the sun, I went, oh, it's your nature to rot, to shine. It's the nature of the sun to shine on the good and the bad. On the miserable, worst serial killers, to the greatest saints, they get shined on the same way by the sun. So if I wanted to bear witness to suffering, I needed to deal with that perspective. I needed to open my heart that wide that I could see both of those poles and accept them both. This is the nature of real love. It's the nature, it's our own true nature is like that. Like the sun, it shines on everything the same. That's ultimate reality. Relative reality would say, that sucks. Work on it. That's all we can do. So if you want to transcend suffering, it starts here. It's your subjective, our subjective view of things that causes suffering and sees suffering. And most of our suffering is just is, is in our minds. I mean, 
you know, most of us have a place to sleep. We're going to leave here and go back to a place to sleep, and there's probably food in the refrigerator. Most likely have electricity, you know, and a couple of TVs and car stuff. So there's a whole level of suffering that we are not experiencing. In India, right now there's a terrible drought through most a lot of most of India, and especially in the middle part of India. And whole families are committing suicide because there's no water. They can't grow any food. They have nothing to eat. They're starving. And they're in debt beyond belief because they keep borrowing money to buy the seeds to plant the crops that don't grow because there's no water. So the children are, the, the, the teenage children are committing suicide. It's just unbelievable. So if we want to help anybody, if we want to be able to be with that suffering without being destroyed, we have work to do. But that work is not for other people, as it's also for ourselves. Because it, it's for, when, we do, when we treat ourselves well, we treat others well. And we're so, uh, we carry so much um, fear and, and, and about love and about opening up based on our upbringing, you know, based on our parents and what they did and how they did what they did and what, what, what was done to them by their parents and back and back and back. So it's very hard for us to overcome a lot of that programming. But that's what this is about. That's what this is about. So we can be here for anyone and everyone at any time to be present. When we're all repeating the name together, we're all turned to the same place. We're all moving in the same direction. We're letting go of our personal stories and our personal stance and our personal shape for a minute and we're moving towards that place and then we stop chanting and we snap back but the next time we chant we've already been a few steps in that direction so it's a little easier it doesn't may not be experiencing experienceable by us at this moment but that's the way it works the like the tibetan lamas the Rinpoche's that i know they're all about sh sharing the merit of practice and, and, and being here for suffering and all that. And they're the happiest people you'll ever meet. It's ridiculous. They're so happy. And because they've overcome their subjective view of things. And they're completely here because, <clears throat> because of the, the, us who don't know. They have no other reason to be here except to hold that light here for us to see. They could have gone, disappeared into whatever, but they stay here. So we know that there's something, some possibility. Without that, what would we know, right? We would have no idea that there was a path, that there was even a, a God, if there is.
whatever that word means. So, it's so heavy. Breathe it in, it's so wonderful. Anybody else? Um, can you speak to us about the difference between belief and faith? Belief and faith? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, what was, you mean the difference between real faith and blind faith? Yeah, that's the difference. <laughs> One's blind and one is based on reality, on your own experience. For us, mostly it's confidence at first. Confidence in ourselves, confidence that there is a path to walk, confidence that has been walked before, confidence that we might be able to put one foot in front of the other if we pay attention and learn how to be good to ourselves. Blind faith means thinking is out there somewhere just because somebody said so. And it hasn't, we don't have the experience ourselves. So there's a difference. Blind faith is useless. It's based on nothing. It's an emotional state which can come and go. But real faith, living faith, is, comes from your own experience. And you deal with your life as, it, as you experiencing it because that's what's there every minute. And you, you learn to trust yourself a little bit. And also, you, you know, you... I was amazed when I realized that all these miserable books they write might be real, might be right. All these holy books actually might be right. I should read some. You know? So at very least at the beginning or, or even at some, at the very least, one of the things we can do is to suspend disbelief. Because that will the, the, the not believing that there could be or not recognizing that there really might be something to this or you might actually be worthy of love will, will make it impossible for, you, for us to find that. So you suspend disbelief. You say, okay, maybe it's okay. Let's see what happens. Let me do some stuff and see how I feel. And then from that, a living faith might come, you know, living understanding. Faith just means dealing with reality because we don't see reality. And you don't have to manipulate your emotions. I mean, that is such a waste of time. But that's all we do. And chanting can feel like that too, you know, by the way. Because we, we want to get off, we want to have a good time, we want to jump up and down and do all that stuff. But that's okay because the name is what's being repeated. And the name, every repetition of the name is a seed that's planted. Okay? And that seed will grow and, and have its, um, show itself as time goes on. It's experiential. You're not expected to sit here and feel ultimate bliss. <clears throat> and if you do, please see me afterwards. Um, you're not, there's no expectation at all when you do a practice, you should, you should try not to have expectations, which is almost impossible. We all want to, you know, okay, I'm going to meditate now. I'm meditating. I don't feel anything better. <laughs> Shit. Okay, that's enough for today. 
That's pretty much the way it goes. <laughs> but sit with that, you know. So there's no reason to get up. Sit with that. Takes It takes a little bit of understanding, you know, and a little bit of relaxing about our own stuff and our own knee-jerk reactions, which we call life, you know. And if we do get a hit, it comes from inside. The real hits come from inside, you know. And uh, what was that guy's name? St. Paul. By grace was I saved through faith. So we think we're doing this, but actually... The calling out is the answer. You know, we think we're calling out, but actually it's the answer. That's the response. We're already being pulled. And that's the response. So that's the grace, is recognizing that. And that gives you a, uh, you see that you're in the game, you know. It's happening. We all think we're real, don't we? We think, we think we're real. You think you're you, I think I'm me. Sorry. It's not that way. I, I think that too, but I, that's the thing about ultimate reality and relative reality. But we're stuck in rel relative reality when each of us is a little bubble that's separate from all the other bubbles. And um, that those beliefs become more transparent as time goes on. But that's those. That's I said the word belief there. So we believe that because it's our experience. That's what we're experiencing. You look like you. I look like me. I can't deny that. However, our experience can change th through. A lot of issues, a lot of things like practice and opening to the path and understanding what this is all about. Our experience changes, and based on that, we see things differently. We'll be seeing things differently, we'll believe different things. You believe what you see or what you experience. What do you do when that changes? Your beliefs change. And that's what practice does it changes your experience, you become less fearful less angry, less of a, a, less of a victim in, your own, in our own mind. And it changes the way you go through a day. It changes the way you treat people. It changes the way you feel about yourself. It changes the way you, the time when you're not busy doing things feels to you. You know, you don't have to fill everything up so much. You don't have to be busy all the time. You don't have to be avoiding yourself all the time. Everything, it's subtle. It's as if we were born wearing glasses that are the wrong prescription, right? So we look out, everything's kind of, but we don't know. That's, that's what it looks like to us, right? That's what it looks like. So based on that, 
we go through our life, you know. And, but what happens is the, the glasses start self-correcting little by little. And, all, and things look differently. So we act differently. You know, people who are ugly before become kind of cute. Yeah. And then it's a whole other ballgame. Or it's as if we were born at night, right? And we only know darkness. And we look around and the trees look scary and there's sounds out there and we don't know, we can't see people look like shadows and, you know, it's kind of weird, right? But then the sun starts to rise, little by little. First it's just a couple of little rays, you know, and you hardly notice it. But then all of a sudden things look different. And by the time it's midday, there's no shadows anywhere. But that's, that's a, uh, you know, that's what it's like when we do practice. It's not that we have to change the way we see things. It's that through practice, the way we cha see changes. And you got to do it. That's why they call it practice. But it doesn't have to be heavy. Anything that helps you disconnect from the constant flow of obsessive thinking is, is practice. Yeah. Mike, you have the mic? Okay. I have a question um, about the music. About music. Music. Yeah. How did I know? <laughs> <laughs> so um, when you sing or like, you know, chant and um, song you share, is it something like you have an idea about? Like the song has come, you know, and you shared it. So there is a certain length to it or the times that you repeat the mantra? Mm -hmm. Or do you surrender each time <clears throat> to that divine flow or maybe Neither. share more about it? Either one would be too much thinking. Uh -huh. So please share your process. I just do it. I do it until I'm finished doing it. And I do another one. I'm not thinking about it at all. I just, time to stop. Okay. I stop. You know, you, you get into a groove with a certain number of chants that you've been, you know, you sing more often than others. It goes through changes. It just happens, you know. There's no motive behind it. I'm, nothing's trying I'm not, the only thing I'm trying to accomplish is that I'm trying to pay attention, whatever it is I'm doing. Be, give myself 100% to it, or 100% of my usual 3%, to be more specific. That's all. There's no, there's no, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. How would I know? I'm the one that's supposed to go going away when I sing. <laughs> so how could that guy know anything? I'm not paying attention to him. I'm just singing. And the chant becomes more, uh, the singing, the chanting becomes more and more and more uh, like home base and everything else, including myself, just and all my thoughts about it just seem far away, further away. Nobody ever taught me how to chant. I just started singing with the guys in India. And then I came back to America and did it all differently. <laughs> you know, because it just was more natural. Like, you know, this is essentially just garage band rock and roll with a few mantras. That's all it is. You didn't know that? But that's why, you know, when I do it with a guitar, it doesn't feel the same. This has, I don't know why. There's a certain kind of 
thing that this has. And I didn't plan to start using a harmonium. I was singing with this little thing, ektar, dotar, and, uh, but it wasn't loud enough when more people started to come. They couldn't hear the note, so they couldn't sing well, so I had to get something louder. So this was it. It's kind of hung around, that's all. Boy, I wish that I could say there was a plan. You know, That would make me so powerful. <laughs> this is what I'm doing. <laughs> but there's no plan. Just to keep singing. That's the only plan. As much as I can. Yeah. Be nice to me, I can't hear you. <clears throat> I'm glad we're back to music because I was thinking bad thoughts while you were talking about politics. <laughs> I wasn't talking about politics. Yeah, that's right. You weren't talking about politics. Um, but the music question is, years ago I used to always ask you to play Jay Jagadisha. Uh, Jay Jagadish Hare, yes. that RT, yeah. And finally, I asked Arjun one time, why doesn't he ever play this? And I'd really he said like to know what he said. RT. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it's too RT or something. And uh, RT and is done, I mean, we could sing it. There's no problem singing it. But I don't usually sing it, first of all, because 99% of you don't know the words. So what am I going to do, you know? Now that I've I've forced you to learn the chalisa, at least we can sing that once in a while. See how selfish I am? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, so, so there's so, still no hope on that. No, we can sing it. I can it's no problem. First of all, the funny thing is that I've been singing it for no, no. Forty five years. I still forget the words. Isn't that incredible? I can't get through it. And I just laugh, and I think this is the gang that can't shoot straight. And then why is that uh, recording also, that puja recording, not available with your, the things you bring anymore? Is it just What's not available? Uh, the recording that has Jay Jagadish it's on available. It. It's the, That's the, um, what is it called? Door of Faith. Faith, yeah. It's not out there, right? Oh, it is? Well, okay, I'm blind. I take that back. I looked at it and went, wait a minute, he's not even having this here anymore. Well, we may okay. not have the CD. It may not be, uh, we might not carry around with us, but it's available on probably the web store and probably from Amazon, and iTunes and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I uh, listen to it every day. Unless mine breaks, I don't really need one, but I'm glad that it's there. <laughs> So, Adam, what, this was all about you expressing your compassion for those who couldn't get it. That's right. I That's understand. right. Okay. No, I, it was about my trying to see if you would start singing it. Wait, wait, wait. We can and, sing it. I'm and what's funny, sing. Katie, is yeah. I went up to Arjun today and I asked him, Arjun, why doesn't Katie play God is Real? Uh -huh. I've been coming here for <laughs> six years and no God is Real. And Arjun gave a very good answer. Yeah. Has something to do with the Russians and a hitman, and it was epic and magical, <laughs> and totally not based in reality, but uh, 
So yeah, we're, we can all have requests here if you yeah, just no, no. want the thing to line about up God your divine. Real, I, I only sing that after every seven years. So next year. Ah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> we have see? our preferences. Do you see? Do you understand now what I live with? Um, yeah. The, in India, they don't do that. They don't sing artis, uh without doing the lights. Arti means the lamp, the light, the lamp, the, the lamp that holds the light. You're offering the light to the beloved. So it's it's usually uh, along with a, a ceremony. But um, that wouldn't stop me. I just don't do it, you know, that often. Because nobody knows it, and you know, I didn't come here to sing by myself. If I wanted to sing by myself, I would have stayed home. You're looking at me like you're waiting for something, huh? We can sing it. I won't remember the words. I might, you know, one out of every ten times I actually get through it, and I go, "Whoa, I got through it." <clears throat> It's such a beautiful, beautiful prayer. So beautiful. I don't know. I don't know who actually put it together. It could have been Swami Shivananda. I mean, it might have been something that was sung, and he just he codified it and made it because he he had a whole bunch of artis that he put out that he used to sing that he put out in his book, one of his books. Um, but I don't think he originated with him. I don't think, but you never know. Could have, I'm not, but I think it's older than that. But this is to be, you know, hail to the Lord of the universe. You know. Ah, I can't. You have to look up the meaning yourself. Who removes the problems and the the, the the distress of his devotees or her devotees? In this case, Jagadish is male, but it's. It's not a male-female kind of thing. In a minute, in a moment, they're far away. So, it's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. You want to sing it? Yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> so what was this about the hitman, the Russian hitman or something? You're just giving her the secret teachings? Is that what you're doing? Okay. Very good. At least the ones we can talk about. So how many people actually even know what, what we're doing here? Nobody. Five people. Ten people. Five people. I knew there was one. There's one in every crowd. I'm going to see what happens. Jaya Jagadish. Jagadish is the Lord of the universe. Ish is Lord. Jagat is world, actually, I think, or universe, universe. Jaya Jagadish Hare. Hare. Right, hail. Bhakta Janan Ke Sankata. The problems, the stress of the devotees. Kshaname Durakare. In a moment, far away, taken away.
Love him, him. 